The color of your skin don't matter to me, as long as we can all live together in harmony, sings the peace group War. We here at Solution to Violence, along with our guest today, Kumar Rashad, agree with Papa D. Allen, B.B. Dickerson, Charles Miller, Eric Burden, Harold Brown, Howard Scott, Lee Oscar, and Lonnie Jordan. The color of your skin don't matter to any of us, as long as we can all live in harmony. Hello, folks. Welcome to Solution to Violence. You are listening to WFMP 106.5 FM. I'm Jim Johnson, here with Jamie McMillan. We're your host for Solutions of Balance, a program of and sponsored by WFMP Radio. Solutions of Balance is part of WFMP's public affairs educational programming. The views expressed are those of our guests and not the station. If you'd like to share your views, you can do this by emailing us at solutionsofbalance18 at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Kamar Rashad has been a Jefferson County public teacher for the last 17 years. He has a Master of Arts and teacher education education and professional development from the University of Louisville and a Bachelor's of Science in Pure Mathematics from the Kentucky State University. He is a current math resource teacher at Breckenridge Metropolitan High School. He was recognized by JCPS as one of 10 employees at the Educators of Color Celebration in January 2021. Kamar has served on the board of directors for both Jefferson County Teachers Association and Kentucky Educators Association. In addition, Kamar Rashad is a member of the Association for Study of African American Life and History. Thank you, Rashad, for being with us today. Hey, thank you guys for inviting me. Appreciate it. Okay, so let's just jump right in. Kamar Rashad, you have 17 years experience as an educator and a teacher in the Jefferson County public school system. Currently, you are a math resource teacher at Breckenridge Metropolitan High School. Talk about the student population at Breckenridge Metropolitan. How diverse is it? What percent of the student body is white versus students of color? Is this diversity healthy for both white and African-American students? Okay. Well, Breckenridge Metropolitan High School is an alternative high school. So our students are uh, awarded to us by the uh, criminal justice system, whether or not the incident happened in school or out of school. So that's one thing that really makes my school unique in that aspect is that if we were to talk about the school to prison pipeline, I'm on the tail end of that, that ride right there. So, you know, if we, it's, so the urgency is real, is very real because if we don't do our best to uh, educate and really just try to uh, save these young men, mostly young men, then most likely many of you may see them on the news or we'll see them in our criminal justice system permanently. The student population is, are, is, about 90% black males. There are some females. There are a few, two I can think of, uh, no, a few, maybe a few more Latino students and uh, maybe about as, about as many, maybe five, roughly five uh, white students in, in, in the, as a student body. Uh, it's not diverse. It's not diverse and it's not healthy. And it really just points to the system and whole as to why this is even happening. You know, our, our student population of uh, Black students, students of color, is about almost about at 50 percent at JCPS at this point. But in a school like mine with the criminal justice system, 90 percent of them are, 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 are Black. And it's not to say that uh, maybe one group is committing more crimes than another group. It's just who we tend to look at and who we target. So it's just the system just lets me know that 
again, the young black males are being targeted and it's leading them into, uh, and we're not doing enough on our end to wrap our arms around these young men, especially, and uh, them become who they were meant to be and not just who the world sees them as. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. yeah. 17 years is a lot of time to spend as an educator in one school district. We recognize JCPS uh, with it, over 96,000 students. It is a huge district. But tell us what you have experienced with this district. How, how has the school system changed? And, and talk about the progress and shortfalls that you've seen. Yeah, I've been I've been uh, been with them since actually since 2003 uh, with JCPS since 2003, and that we had a uh, I believe Steve Dashman was the superintendent at that point, and uh, I remember everything underneath him was really about data. Uh, we we talked a lot about data and uh, more data, and um, you know when you you look at the data, the you know the data we normally talk about still the same data we always talk about uh, uh, who's achieving what and what standardized test and how we're breaking it down across different racial and socioeconomic groups so there was a lot of just a lot of focus on data and I remember there was a lot of conversation at that point about going to standards-based grading as we see it putting in today more just let's just talk in a conversation and a lot of conversation on what can we do to decrease the academic achievement gap as well that's what's always been the case but overall throughout all of these years the district really hasn't made a a sincere effort to analyze what is the academic achievement gap does it really exist or not what do the do our people of color need do we really need another standardized test no of course not so then we move on from there and then we get Sheldon Berman and then I remember his was more of a you know I think we started coming to more of a student-centered way of thinking around him where you know it was I think he, he was really bringing into the conversation a whole lot of about uh, the culture of the students and culture of the staff and so we had that shift but uh, you know it, it felt like for me it just felt like people weren't ready for that yet and he wasn't given enough time he made a couple of you know lost the faith of a few people along the way and then we switched to Donna Hargens and uh, then we had a uh, you know someone who I just felt was just completely disconnected to the student population and culture and uh, you know that that led us to the, the dismay that we land on the state's table of schools that need to be audited and taken over and you know now we have Marty Polio and that's really you know the, the Marty Polio really started uh, is really one of them persons who, who's really trying to bring the two together the, the Sheldon Berman and the Steve Dashner tight together. Uh, you, you got your data and he's really try, trying to talk about culture at the same time. So that piece was a major shift because within that we developed a committee that I'm on, the Advisory Council for Racial Equity, also known as the Acre Committee, in which we uh, helped develop many of the policies for racial equity in our district. I guess the tragedy behind that, not to, I'm not trying to negate the celebration because that's so, so necessary. We've been needing to do that. I guess the tragedy is that we've been needing to do that for such a long time. It's a shame that it only started three years ago, you see. So, so in that case, you know, the school system is, 
has changed in that, that we're really uh, doing a more effort to focus on the child, but it stays the same in the same respect that we still have to take these standardized tests that there's these standardized tests that really don't speak to who our children are. You know, we want them to do deeper learning, but we want them to take this shallow test. <laughs> they don't go together. You know, and they really mean are meaningless. You know, they're, they're not predictors of success only in the way that we make them gatekeepers to a different world. But as far as in practicality in the real world, these tests aren't really aren't predictors of anything. And, you know, historically based on a whole system of racism anyways, uh, you tell about a product they produce. So that's where we are right now. We're trying to straddle that line between being culturally conscious and having equity, but facing racist constructs that generate most of the money for the school and they're going to keep us going in the wrong direction. So they're at direct odds with each other right now. So we're in a fight this is fight for our education right now to see which one we're going to do. I think we need to, uh, well, you know, which one I think we need to do. We got to focus more on the whole child and less on these tests, obliterate them as far as I'm concerned. Okay. So you talked about Marty Polio, the current superintendent. He became superintendent in July 2017. And you, you did point out, Kumar, that some progress has occurred. Jefferson County Public School System is no longer under the state assistance and audit of the Kentucky Board of Education. WEB, the boys, an all-black boys middle school has been established. The district has three new elementary schools that will be built in South and West Louisville and Newburgh as well. The renovation of the third floor at Shawnee High School in Louisville's West End has been completed. A new girls' academy that will contain only, or at least mostly, students of color has been established. But there are lingering problems. And you talked about the standardized test scores, and you'd like to just do away with those those scores. But as of 2019, as the Kerr Journal article pointed out, penned by Olivia Kraft and Mindy McLaren, uh, the article was titled, New Kentucky Test Scores Show Stark Differences in JCPS School Achievement, end quote, demonstrates that as of 2019. So that test score gap that you mentioned before, that exists between uh, mostly middle-class white kids and and mostly uh, working-class students. And then there's the JCPS Cascade Data Portal demonstrates that for fiscal 2020-21, some 10,528 African-American students were suspended, while only 3,582 white students were suspended. Those statistics demonstrate that out of 14,108 students suspended in 2020 and 21, 75% were African-American and only 37% were white. So considering these problems, what's your strategy for closing the standardized test score gap between middle-class white kids and mostly working-class, mostly African-American kids? So I assume you just want to do away with that test score test altogether? Oh, my goodness. Absolutely. I think that uh, it has its place for those who want to use it. Okay. You know, I wouldn't want to tie anyone's hands and say, no, you can't use it. But what I would offer is that that not be the, the gatekeeper, that not be the way that we assess our kids and pin the number on them and identify them as the class because that is a, a severe inaccurate representation of who our kids are and how they learn. You know, there's so many skills and skill sets 
for survival that our kids need that we're not teaching, or if we're not teaching, or if we are teaching that are not being assessed and don't make up, you know, uh, don't make up who our students are. Decreasing the suspension for African Americans, we have to we have to do a better job of getting more representation into these schools. We have to do a better job of getting more Black teachers, Black administrators, Black policies, Black curriculum, and multicultural. You know, not just Black. We just happen to be, as far as numbers, uh, very heavy in JCPS. But we need all of these. We need all of these because for our students, you know, you go through, our students go through their whole lives seeing themselves as less than human because that's how we present it to them in school. All of the heroes who we learn about as we were growing up, uh, you know, who invented the light bulb? Everyone's going to tell you Thomas Edison, you know, without ever exposing the fact that his assistant, Louis Latimer, a black man, did most of the work and that Thomas Edison light bulb was a complete failure until Louis Latimer invented the carbon filament that made it shine but he gets none of the credit. And but that's the way that we're, you know, that's the way that we're programmed to believe that we're not important. Because if we weren't at the party, we weren't at the show. If you don't make it to the party, you weren't important. And the party is the history books that we're learning. And if we don't make it in there, we're not important. So, but when we do make it in there, we do make it as the slave. So again, you're teaching me that I'm nothing but a slave. And then you wonder why I act a certain way? Because you already put that image on me. I didn't put it on myself. The school is the criminal in this system and they are criminal because they choose to criminalize us without trying to understand who we are. And, you know, I felt the same way when I was in high school. I wrote about it when I was in high school. And, you know, and it's the same thing as a high school student. And, uh, you know, and the same feelings that I felt back then that there was so much racism in the schools. And, and I'm coming from a perspective when I grew up, I went to at least 11 different schools going up around the country. And I'm talking about public schools in New Mexico, public schools in Texas, public schools in Georgia, public schools in Ohio, landed in Frankfort, Kentucky in my junior year in high school. So I'm very familiar with public schools all across America and everywhere I went, I felt the same. It's all across the country. Yeah, we're minimalized, you know. Even as a teacher, I'm minimalized. You know, if I tell someone I'm a high school teacher, the first thing they're gonna ask me is, "Do you teach PE? <laughs> Do you coach basketball? Are you an ISAP instructor?" You know, but you know, well, you know, maybe they'll trickle their way, never trickle their way down. But I, I've got so much of that. But you know, so we need more representation in our in, in all aspects of education, so that we, so that our kids can see uh, the beauty of themselves, and, and you know, then we can really connect to them instead of defining them in a way that imprisons them figuratively and literally. And then going back to the test, like I said, you know, we've got to find all our alternatives that students are able to demonstrate, uh, you know, their competency. Because if I know that a, a student has a certain business acumen, you know, whatever that business is, then I know that a student possesses many skills that expand beyond school walls. There are so many different things that our schools, that our, that our kids are doing outside of school that really counts that, that, that whose skills aren't being valued today. I have a student who comes back to my class after being shot a few times and they come back and 
the student just has a will and desire to live, has a will and the desire to face challenges and to make uh, next steps in his life. Whereas, you know, what he had to deal with in his survival mechanisms and what, you know, brought him to the point where he shouldn't even be here, but he has to deal with that and compartmentalize that and, and really has to emotionally uh, you know, digest that, but be back in school within a, you know, a few days, few weeks, or within a month or whatever, however the timeline goes, then, you know, that person has a certain resilience that can't be quantified on the test. That person has a has experienced so much more than another student who's living in a, a traditional family and has a traditional lifestyles and, you know, the cultures of someone else. But we put them on the same pedestal as far as growth. No, you cannot do that because this person, yeah, he might have grown in this test score, but the, you know, this gentleman has grown so much more and has a different perspective on life than he had before. You know, how you quantify that? He has to survive. This one just has to, this one has just has to get a good grade so mama be happy. Okay. So I, yeah, I'm completely against these tests. We have to find an alternative. If this alternative, if I would suggest one, be to, you know, I, I like the JCPS version of a backpack, something where students can, uh, you know, identify their own skills and put it in their own words and present that to us. It has to be modified and, you know, really refined so that it really reflects what we want. But I don't believe in the system that just takes away all the qualities of it being a, a well-rounded human being and puts it on reading, writing, and arithmetic. It's not fair. It, 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 you know, it doesn't acknowledge all of our artistic geniuses who are truly geniuses, you know, our little Picassos and, you know, Banksy's out there. We can't quantify that. So our school's failing, but we have these geniuses in here. It makes no sense. So again, it's, it's an oppressive system that just intends to keep a certain group of people in permanent underclass. Yeah. And, and it's all funded by these these testing systems. You don't get the right money unless these you get the right score. You get more funding from the government. These testing companies are making billions, if not trillions, off of our money. And furthermore, they don't even tell you what you got wrong. You don't even how do you know you got it wrong? No one knows. They have complete control, autonomy over everything. I don't trust them. I really don't. And, and, be, and I, you know, because it just, I really just don't trust them at all because they've had some complete autonomy. There's no transparency in anything that they do. All of these standardized testing systems do. You know, I, you know, I do uh, for, I help uh, uh, recruit black teachers. And, you know, they have to, a lot of times we've had to pass a standardized test of praxis. And I know of many stories of people who've taken these tests, failed the test, went back, changed their race and passed the test. And that's just, it could be that they studied more. It could be that they had more training. I don't know, but that's the problem is that none of these theories can be tested because there is complete total autonomy and none of their paperwork will ever be revealed by, if, you know, if I try, you try, any of us, anybody you know tries, nobody's getting into that system to see what they're doing. Yeah. Well, there's another change in, in Jackson County schools for 2021-22 school year, Marty Polio, the superintendent, and Jay 
JCPS administration are considering a change in the school assignment plan. That change will allow the mostly African-American West End students to opt out of busing. If that plan is implemented, African-American students will be able to choose as to whether they wish to attend their neighborhood school or be bus to a mostly white school in the suburbs. What's your take on this new school assignment plan? If, if most American, uh, African-American students choose to attend their neighborhood school, won't this going to take away any chance of creating schools with diverse populations? What, what about diversity, too? Yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah, diversity is a good thing. Diversity is a good thing. You know, I never really liked any of the uh, JCPS school assignment plan. They've always been very racist from the beginning. They've always required a majority of the work on the uh, backs of folks who didn't need that extra pressure, you know, who had the least amount of resources. Black folks have to, for the majority, have to, you know, we're talking about busing. We're talking about busing Black kids out of black neighborhoods to schools and areas in which they don't live. That's the converse is, you know, not as true. You know, there are some, there are, you know, many exceptions, but not to the same rate. So we're not seeing the same rate of white kids being taken out of their neighborhoods and put into neighborhoods that they may or may not be familiar with. So that that plan, and even now, you know, there's no way really to around it because most of our, you know, we talk about neighborhoods, but in most of our, you know, we don't we don't have any many neighborhood schools in in let's say West End communities. And that's why they're talking about building them now. They're talking about building about three of them now, which is going to take. I don't know how many years, but it's going to take a few years. And then in, in between that process, we still going to be busting black kids out there, you know, out somewhere else. You know, diversity is a good thing if we can get it on a fair and equal uh, balance. But when you're asking the people who have the least amount of resources to now we have to attend a parent-teacher conferences and sports things all across town when, you know, TARC may not be running right or I, you know, just may not feel like doing that. But the people who have the resources all the way on the other side of town. We're not asking them to do that. They have the resources. They don't, you know, it's easy for them to bring, to go check on their parent-teacher conference across town. It's easy for them to go to the games, but they don't have to do that. They can go right where they are. And um, it's just not fair. It's never been fair. It's always been super racist. So if we're talking about where we have to be, let's say we get those schools finally built in the West End and we have a little bit more representation. We still need more schools in other areas too. But if we get those, then will 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 it impede? Hold on, will uh will most African Americans choose to attend their neighborhood schools? They may. Will it impede the chance of creating schools with diverse population? Yeah, it, it really may. It really may. But unless we can get something that's on some equal footing, then there's no really way around that. Because either we're gonna have this injustice going on right now of shipping black kids all the way across town, or we're gonna have black kids in their own surrounding not necessarily a bad thing you know not a bad thing and, and honestly you know for Rowan versus wade you know schools are better for black folks 
for real. I, I, that's you know my opinion, and but I I know this to be true because black kids were going to a school with black folks who cared about them. You know, had black teachers, black principals, black educators all around them, and they cared about them. But then in the in, in the purpose of diversity, in the purpose of to erase the stigma of racism by somehow magically combining black and white kids, we supposed to be at a equal and fair foot and everything's all kumbaya was a ridiculous thing because once again what happened after Roe versus Wade is that again what we're talking about integrated schools we're talking about busing black kids to the white schools and so now we got black kids mixed into white schools with white kids who at that point of course you see that in time despise them so basically black kids were sent to white schools to be tortured by students and sent to be tortured by adults in there and what's worse is that there were no black adults sent to defend those kids like there are not today no black adults in the schools to defend those kids like there aren't today so in so the whether or not they make a you know all black schools it, it really won't have a significant change on what things are the same way that things are going today in these schools it won't have a significant change unless and this is the big unless unless that the person who's in control of the academic person control of the academics in that school has a very uh, good racial lens has a success of you know has shown prior success of educating black children really understands the cause and the plight of black children and not one who just has a a high post degree it has to be some so you know and that's the problem with many uh of schools one of the schools that i was in in uh, in atlanta as a high school in uh, one of my high schools that i will talk about all black high school harper high school all black everybody that was black but the curriculum was super white we didn't control that. We didn't control the curriculum there. The people didn't control the curriculum. The curriculum was super white. So it was, a, it, you know, anybody, you know, from Atlanta area understood that Hyper High School was a very dangerous high school. And that's what we're built on. So we've got to implement, if we're talking about, if we, if we do end up having all black high schools because we can't get this assignment right or in some way, shape or form, we've got to make sure that we staff it with uh, some folks who really understand these, understand the kids, understand the plight, understand what they're going through and have had some sort of success dealing with them. We just can't throw anybody into the arena. Diversity is good, but like I said, it has to be on an equal footing. We can't foot the whole bill. Or yeah, so an all-white curriculum. Currently, there is a controversy raging concerning the teaching of African American and Native American history. <laughs> that's because that's not white curriculum. <laughs> African American right. and Native American history, as well as an attack on the teaching of the history of LGBTQ and women's rights movement. The Jefferson County Public School System has been accused of teaching quote critical race theory end quote. Some say teaching the history of the African American community is accusatory and could affect white students emotionally. Teaching critical race theory, they claim, could leave white students feeling guilty because of the past injustices that had been leveled against the African-American community. So my question is here, is it possible to teach African-American history without causing guilt among individual white students? Well, all we know is we know what what history is. And as uh, one race of people, we can't control how guilty another race feels. You know, we we just want truth. That's all we want to have truth represented. A study uh, by uh, Rutgers University said that our Black kids 
face at least five microaggressions daily. Some of those are online, whatever groups they're involved with, a lot of it's at school. So those same critics of critical race theory, it's funny, critics of critical race theory and critics of uh, black and brown and LGBTQ history, you know, are, are really disingenuous because there is no uh, sense of urgency when our kids are being attacked and they are every single day you know uh, you know it, that teacher more high school choking that student on the ground a week or two ago was not an isolated incident it's never been never been as a teacher i've personally seen it myself many times not the exact choking or hurting of a student but i've seen the instigation i've seen i've seen the instigation by teachers who don't understand students push a student to a point where you know someone's young they should be able to act or behave themselves better but then again you got to realize they're 15 16 or younger and, and an adult shouldn't be pushing the student to a point where you know it looks like the adult wants to fight the student but the adult has enough control not to throw the first punch that's that's the reality and so a lot of students they get hit with these microaggressions and get hurt you already been taught you a slave from k-12 and now you're still being stepped on and oppressed and so these people who 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 don't want black history are okay with this being the way that it is right now they're okay with this status quo of us being treated and uh, like uh like i keep saying referring back to a permanent underclass they're okay with that and then they never have any real reasons on why we can't teach the truth they never say it's not the truth you know we're not teaching the truth well first of all critical race theory uh jcps jcps can't teach critical race theory because jcps like most other people in the country didn't know what critical race theory was for the most part you know there's a few exceptions in there but it had it's never been a focus i mean kimberly crenshaw wrote about critical race theory 40 years ago and no one ever thought about the impact of, you know, or really complained about the impact of critical race theory on this national level until uh, Donald Trump made it an issue. And had he not uh, pinpointed critical race theory as what he tried to demonize, uh, just the phrase of critical race theory and, you know, put it out to the public as, as something that's teaching black kids to hate white kids because of the atrocities and the injustices of the past where you look at it and you ask yourself the critical question, when have black people ever tried to take over this country? Furthermore, give me one name of one black person who's ever tried to take over this country, right? But then if you just wanna subtract eight months from today, then you see a whole lot of people tried to take over this country on January 6th. So those are the those are the people that we gotta worry about. We're not worried about we we can't worry about teaching black folks black history. That's what we should be doing. That's what we should be doing. You can't sit there and tell me all about your superheroes and then you won't let me have mine. How am I supposed to be that? How am I supposed to be what I can't see? That's the rhyme that we got to keep saying. How am I supposed to be what I can't see? Because we say that in men equality all the time. In order to be a man, you got to see a man. And our kids aren't seeing their reflections of themselves in these schools. They're not seeing any reflection of themselves in these books. They're not seeing a reflection of themselves positively on the news. So all of these microaggressions just builds up a character. So now you can't sit there and wonder why is it cool to do the things that people are seeing on the videos, you know, exploiting uh, cars, money, women, 
You know, you, you, how, when that's the only image of them that they're allowed to see. If we're allowed to show them that how we were kings and queens in Africa, man, Samusa, the richest man that ever lived on this planet, worth about 60 Jeff Bezos. If we tell them about Queen Nzinga and Angola, who does that hurt? The fact that she's one of the fiercest female fighters all the way into the 80s and 90s, she was on the battlefield and that she was fought the Portuguese and the Portuguese ran her off three, almost four times, but she came back and fought back and beat them down to where they couldn't take over Angola until 10 years after she died. That make it feel a little bit different. When they hear about how Wonder Woman was based off of a group of Amazon women and those Amazon women were really the African warriors of Benin from a land called Dahomey and that they were called Amazons by European uh, explorers up into their area because of how fierce they were that had an all-woman military force over there and that, uh, you know, you know, they were really big kingdoms over there comparable to any European kingdom. It makes you feel a little different. It definitely makes you feel a different. Just as the same as if white people and black people differ so many, much in, in the sense that most white people can say, you know, their lineage, you know, my great grandfather came over here from wherever. And even though he didn't or she didn't have anything, they started and, and they built their way up. And, you know, and that makes you feel good when you know your history and your lineage like that. But me, if all I know is that, I don't know where they came from, but somebody was a slave up there and all people from Africa and Africa's a bad place because they got jungles and this and that and people just demonize your whole continent and everything about you and everything that you came from. Yeah, 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 they were asking for, they were asking for chaos. Honestly, it's so great that black folks are so resilient. We've never been about revenge. Like we've never, if anybody, you know, as much as we've been through, you know, some people look at us like, why haven't y'all fought back and stuff like that? Because we don't believe in that. You know, we we don't believe in revenge like that. We're, we're, we're really just trying to, we're just really just trying to live, survive, get on equal footing. And that's it. But, you know, so many people are worried about us and we're not worried about those other people. And this is so, so, you know, but you got to be aware of who you are and where you are and uh, deal with your surroundings and your environment. Yeah. Yeah. Tomorrow, you have given us a good idea of why keeping African-American and Native American history is critically important for growth and development of black students and, and students of color. You also believe that that teaching African-American and Native American history is critically important for the growth and development of white students as well. Why? Why? Oh my God, right. It is absolutely imperative that our white students know this information too, because we have to know about each other's cultures. Otherwise, otherwise we end up the way we are right now as looking at each other as aliens. And that's how it ends up becoming because if, uh, you know, if white folks know the truth, then you start to humanize people. If we know the truth, we be, we become humanized because it's now it's not about this glorified, false version of history that Superman came in with his cape and saved the day. That there were so many multi-level and multi-factors that had, and there were a whole lot of people around that they're not telling us in the history books. Then white folks, number one, lose a false sense of superiority. And, and this is not even their fault. 
<laughs> they fall because the system has prepared us all to believe the same thing. The system has prepared white folks to believe that they're superior. The system has prepared black folks to believe that white folks are superior. The system is built that way. I guess that's one of the things that critical race theory talks about, if we were to go back to that. But it does talk about the, the racism within systems and doesn't point the finger at individual people and say, you're a bad person, you're a bad person. This It just simply says that there were racist things that happened in the past that really lead itself to where we are today. And when we want to go ahead and want to figure out how we want to deal with, with the inequities of today, you know, you look at the past and not, and more importantly, look at the past and their policies, because that's what critical race really focuses on. What are these policies that are creating inequitable outcomes? And, and that's what we got to start focusing on. You know, it's, it's a shame that something that I make, I guess, sounds so simple as this big boogeyman uh, to other people when it shouldn't be because most of those people who talk about critical race theory don't know anything about it never read anything from you know from any of the scholars of critical race theory they just uh they just go about what they hear and listen to people who have no credibility uh yeah our yeah. white students definitely need to learn this because it helps them deal with uh, false and superiority and it helps them understand other folks and be able to treat them as equals because we need that in order for our society to continue in order for us to progress in order to progress we digressing in so many directions look at the violence but if we are in order to progress we've got to be able to look at e look at our, each other as equals see each other you know um on that same footing and allow each other our space to deal with our own things and the space to come together. It can't just be all a hovering attempt by one group over the other monitoring us all the time. We don't need uh, more police in our neighborhoods. We we need more resources. They, there are, you talking about there being fewer uh, people of color as teachers. What do you think students can learn black and white from those teachers who are people of color and not just teachers, but administrators. We don't see many administrators, people of color. Uh, what, what can students learn by having those people in their classrooms and, and schools? They learn a whole lot. They have learned a whole lot. First of all, they learn that there aren't any limits to how far you can go. There's so many times where you're growing up and, you know, there's so many times growing up for me, I didn't have a black male teacher until I went to college. And I went to college at Kentucky State University, a historically black college university. And so many people have shared that same experience. You know, uh, so many people say, yeah, I've had a black female teacher, and but not, never a black male teacher. And, 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 it's, and it's good. I'm sorry, I forgot what the, your, the, the, the last part of your question was. Well, what, what can students learn from administrators and teachers? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. There you go. And and that's and that's important because, you know, you, you just have to, you know, again, the same phrase keeps coming up. In order, to, in order to be a man, you have to see a man. And that's the, that's the same thing because what they learn is that there aren't any limits because a lot of times growing up, you don't see people who look like leadership positions just as I didn't see anybody who looked like me in a leadership position growing up through school these kids need to have the opportunity both black and white need to see that because you don't want you don't want anybody going into a situation 
on any type of job or business venture, because I don't really like to say job, because that's another problem we have. We teach our kids too much to talk about jobs and begging somebody for a job instead of creating one. And then and, and black kids especially need to be taught entrepreneurship and getting a piece of that economic pie. But we need more black leadership and, and more leaderships of color because black and white kids benefit from seeing that. You know, and, and, and not only that black and white kids benefit from seeing that, black teachers benefit as long as well uh, along with the kids of seeing somebody black in a higher leadership position sister principal principal because a lot of time a lot of for us is you know uh especially in uh jefferson you know in all across the country not just jefferson county you know black folks are usually the last one hires an administration whereas you know for the longest time in jefferson county you know someone black would have to be wait 10 15 years before they get promoted to just an assistant principal where someone white would get it within four to five years and it's just you know and it hasn't been to recently that because of our committee the advisory council of racial equity that we've raised those numbers that we have more representation and went from like 12 percent to over 30 percent administrators of color in the district we need a lot of more help getting males in that color and latinos yeah we're way deficit on a latino uh and so representation as far as leadership in our in our schools and our kids need to see that they need to see that i mean you know when i was growing up I never, ever thought that we'd have a black president, like not in my lifetime, not in my lifetime. You know, I've heard rap songs when I was growing up. I was a rapper myself. And then we made songs about, you know, everything, you know, that we didn't like about this country. And one of the things was this country was so racist that we'll never have a black president. We never saw that as an opportunity. Again, in order to be a man, you got to see a man. So again, once we had seen Obama, and now it's like, whoa, okay, so we're, we're ready to do that. That qualifies on every level of it, every level, from student seeing teacher, from student seeing teacher and assistant principal, student seeing teacher, assistant principal and principal, all the way up to superintendent when it gets that way so someday. So it's definitely, and because you want these uh, young kids grow up and become on, like I said, on their job or on their business venture, they're going to have to work with people of diversity and they're going to have to be able to look at them in a, in a, in an honest way, in a pure, in a, you know, in a, in a more uh, thoughtful way in a, with uh, less judgment and bigotry and just really just look at qualities that individuals possess in order to get the end goal accomplished. And okay. So inferiority, yeah. inferiority with inferiority, will interfere with that process every time. So yeah, we recognize you made a good case for teaching African-American history. But recently, Republicans Joe Fisher and Matt Lockhart have pre-filed bills, Bill BR-60 and BR-69. Those bills will impede the teaching of African-American and Native American history, as well as the history of the LGBTQT community and the women's rights movement. These two bills will not only negatively impact the teaching of these histories in our public schools, but in our colleges and universities as well. These bills are based on the premise that teaching Native American and African-American history negatively impacts the self-image or the psychic of young middle and high school students. If the Fisher-Lockhart bills become law, the law would allow the Kentucky Attorney General to levy heavy fines $5,000 per day against districts found in violation 
and revoked the certification of teachers found in violation. So, Kumar, what's your take on the Fisher-Lockhart bills? These bills are completely biased. They have no factual evidence on any of their claims, like none whatsoever. I went to one of their meetings, uh, one of the uh, No Left Turn Kentucky, basically another uh, uh, extension of the Tea Party here in Louisville, and they had a uh, seminar, what they thought was exposing critical race theory, and they had two speakers uh, talk about critical race theory and they were saying a lot of things that were false things they couldn't back up and when i asked them when i asked them you know for their sources so yeah they gave me a a a four to five minute video clip on judge joe brown uh perspective on critical race theory and uh, and that you know, and they didn't even play the video. That was just in the credits that they were showing us. It was two YouTube videos. One was JoJo Brown. One was a YouTube video clip of somebody that was like two or three minutes. And neither one of them were credible sources. And then just a vague reference to a book that they had. But it was, yeah, it was terrible. They have no sources to back up anything that they're saying. Uh, Lockhart, Fisher, both of them are included in that statement. A matter of fact, I'm trying to remember uh, which one of them actually went to the floor. One of them went to the floor that, but and it was some of the material that one of them used when he went to the floor of, uh, of the Congress to speak about his uh, disdain for critical race theory. He used a pamphlet that's been circulating all throughout the country. And this pamphlet states this false narrative of a teacher somewhere somewhere who decided to separate kids by black and by white. He got up on the TV and said that. And and he said that in the Kentucky legislator. So then when uh, later on, when I go to the, the, the venue I was just talking about by No Left Turn Kentucky, they had that, they had that exact same story that was promoted in one of their national, one of their national magazines, uh, Arden Fisher, both of you. It's ridiculous. It's, it's terrible. I, I, you know, and, you know, and that's not two people you just really just want to antagonize because we got a super Republican uh, majority, but I, it is very important that people just really just understand the truth and that we're just going to ignore and just negate the truth just uh, with and not use our educated minds and really just follow up to see what are people's resources and what are they using to support their claims, then, you know, they, those people should not be talking to me about education in the first place. So, uh, but the truth is, you know, if this bill passes, it will cause a lot of tension in a field that's hard, that's, that's it's very hard to get educators in here right now. You know, we're, we're passing, uh, we're getting ready in a special session, they're talking about passing bills that's allowing retirees come back into the school system uh, without paying into the teacher retirement system again because we need more bodies in the classroom. This this bill is going to push more teachers away, going to really decimate the field as, a, as and, and really, and there's so many questions, how are you going to enforce it? So you just can't teach anything. Me personally, my philosophy is this bill's passed. Expect for me to be the first one, expect me to be the first one that they come after because I will teach Black history every single day like I do already for every day of my life. They will never stop. It will never stop. They can go ahead and find what they want to find. They can go ahead and do what they want to do. But no, man, I'm no, no. You know, got to take a stand on this one. And this is the stand. This is this is the hill I'm ready to die on. Kumar, let's go in a different direction here. You are currently contemplating a run 
for Louisville Metro Council from District 15. District 15 roughly covers the Jefferson County region that stretches from Central Avenue on the north side. It includes Churchill, the Churchill neighborhood on the east side. It stretches to the Water Center Expressway on the south side and includes Churchill Downs and Wyandotte. So District 15 also stretches to Palaka Road in the southwest and includes Iroquois Park, a fairly large district. Does the population of District 15 reflect a mostly middle-class community or working-class community, maybe some of both? It's a lot of both. District 15 is the most diverse part of Louisville, period. I mean, that's where you have the uh, Americana Nation for uh, our, our immigrants. You know, uh, immigrants come to, most of the immigrants come to District 15. We have a great library personnel in the Iroquois Library who really takes care of a lot of our immigrant population in their you know, uh, in, in, in that area. So we have that as a very large population. But then District 15 also goes out to uh, Germantown on Eastern Parkway. So you have vast differences of what's going on um, between going from the Iroquois area, Churchill Downs area, going all the way to uh, Germantown on Eastern Parkway. So yeah, so that is, uh, it's a pretty large district. Yeah, it's a pretty large district. And, you know, it, it's very, very common complex and it's 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 a very good mix of all a lot of different families you know talking about real where I'm at right now I'm in the uh, you know uh, the cloverleaf neighborhood and I call it one of the best kept secrets of Louisville and that's not just because I'm the neighborhood association president but it's also because you know it, it, it's really a quiet kept neighborhood and it's really close to Iroquois Park and um it's part of our neighborhood but you know you go uh, in any direction, two or three miles in any direction, you see a lot of diversity because then you can cut through and see, uh, you know, our St. Mary's Hospital. We can go to Church of Downs and there's a lot of areas over there that are, you know, there and over here off of uh, in, in the Iroquois area, a lot of areas that are hit by poverty. Uh, you know, you got some areas that are, uh, you got some abandoned homes you have, but in District 15, you also have, like I said, areas like Clover than you have. We need a lot of improvement as far as getting more businesses in this area because we do have Churchill Downs. We do have a few others, but oftentimes, as is the case in the South End of Louisville, if you want to get something, you have to leave this area. So that's one thing, one uh, area of improvement we have to do here in District 15, create more green spaces, get some more, get some more uh, affordable housing in different areas, not that are just so congested. Uh, somewhere that's close to places where you can eat, eliminate some of these food deserts that's here in our area. And um, I don't think that's the focus of District 15 right now. So that's why uh, it has to make a change and someone has to be the one to change that direction. Okay, well, our Democrat Kevin Triplett uh, currently represents District 15. What, what can you bring to the table that, that Kevin Triplett has not and how will this new resolution uh, district uh, for uh, benefit people for District 15? Yeah, um, you know, what I bring to the table is compassion for the underrepresented. We have many pockets of underrepresented people in District 15 who have never seen their councilman and would never see their councilman. We're, we're constantly operating out of a status quo mentality. You will see neighborhoods like the one I live in. Yeah, we'll see our councilman. If we request our councilman, we'll see our councilman. 
because this area that I live in, this is this is you know this is a big voting hub. Uh, so they'll well, they'll see the councilman over here. So that's that's the one of the things. So it's not about just going out and and, and uh, appeasing just the more affluence of your your district. Uh, we have to really put things in action that really help all of our neighbors. Like I said, we have a, a, a lot of programs that we can, you know, a lot of programs that really are here to help our immigrant population. And there are other programs that, you know, we can support those type of programs. Like I said, the Iroquois Public Library, Americana, different type things. And, you know, do all that. And like I said, different things earlier as far as you know, uh, creating more green space, creating more economic opportunity. I think that it's a shame that uh, it, here in this district that we've had a, a grocery store shut down, um, creating a big food desert right here in this area. But at the same time that we create a food desert, then we want to go ahead and build a complex with 200 home units in there and call it, say, oh, we're doing that just for affordable housing. Yo, yo. But but when I come to the table and say that this the affordable housing place that we that you're talking about should be put closer, it's actually a place that's actually closer to me than where they wanted to, but it's actually in a place that's more convenient that actually has sidewalks and closer to a Kroger so that people can eat and not leaving these people in a food desert, you know, then it's just you know, nobody wants to hear that. Nobody wants to hear that. We just wanna district fifteen, we just wanna make deals with councilmen and other districts who want to put uh, different units in our district that they are not willing to put in their district because we're just going to sit there and take it and not really do anything for the people. I'm not a minimalist. Uh, anything I put my heart to, I do. I go all the way in. And um, and you know, and when it comes to representing, so you know, what I would bring to the table is visibility transparency what you see is what you get always you want to you want to know what i'm thinking or i'm feeling just ask me just ask me you know we'll, we'll continue putting out newsletters and uh and really like i said uh creating economic opportunities for our people out there there's so many different groups of people who don't even know about resources that we have in the city that are able to help them out kentucky housing corporation volunteers of america building tiny houses doing things with habitat of humanity and Thing, you know, just wraparound service of people who are homeless. And we're not looking at that. We're not looking at creating programs that teach these kids in these areas how to go to these broken down homes, revamp these homes, sell these homes, do something in school right now to make so that the kids can leave school tomorrow, go out and do some sort of and be a positive benefit to their community. You know, with every abandoned house should be a learning opportunity that, that we as a city could be able to learn from and uh, take an experience and let some of these kids and families build from these houses and get involved in all sorts of processes that would help the community as far as revitalizing neighborhood, getting together with U of L research department who made us a serious effort in the past three or four years to plant trees in people's neighborhoods and do different uh, scientific efforts to, to to raise the quality of air. Speaking of raising the quality of air, looking at all the air pollution and emissions uh, laws that we have across the state and saying, hey, we don't have to settle for the status quo. If the state sets the limit right here, we have the right to, to restrict it even further. You know, we don't have to let all these emissions go out into our atmosphere. We can control what businesses do, put plant down, 
around, stand up to the big corporations and make them pay, pay their fair share of taxes that they refuse to do. How much money is, you know, I like Churchill Downs as a neighborhood association president because they support the neighborhood that I'm in. But I do as a school teacher, I'm like, hey, I need y'all owe us some money on this property taxes there, man. We need some of that money to help our students. So we've got to make, uh, and that's just not the only one. I mean, that's just one I'm picking on right now. I could go to Yum's Corporation say the same thing, but they need to really pay their fair share of taxes and support our kids. Stop taking money from my babies. <laughs> so those are the things that I offer that uh, current councilmen would never have the uh, willingness to uh, stand up to, to different people. So a lot more so, uh, there are so many other things we want to talk about. Unfortunately, Mr. Rashad, we are about out of time and we want to thank you for being our guest today on Solutions to Violence. All right. Appreciate it. Thank you, guys. I'll talk to y'all soon. Ladies and gentlemen, we are again out of time. Solutions to Violence airs on Mondays at 5 p.m., Tuesdays at 8 a.m., Wednesdays at 6 a.m. Today's program will be repeated September 14th and 15th. The Solutions to Violence program featuring Tamar Rashad will be placed in our archives September 15th, 2021. To listen to our archives, visit us at forwardradio.org. Scroll down to Program Archives and then scroll down to Solutions Surveillance Program that features Kamar Rashad. If you'd like to share your thoughts about our discussion with Kamar Rashad, you can reach us with the following email, solutions to violence 18 at gmail.com. Thank you for joining us in our search for solutions to violence. I'm Jamie McMillan with Jim Johnson. We're your hosts for Solutions to Violence. Our technical engineer is Carolyn Brooks Johnson. Until next time, please keep the peace in your own personal way and help others do the same. Thank you for listening.